1: Hello, I'm Philip Coggan, The Economist's Buttonwood columnist, and this is Money Talks. Later in the program, Uber is the most valuable private tech startup in America, but it's grappling with a major copyright lawsuit, allegations of sexual harassment, and an inquiry into its workplace culture.
2: The tech industry is notoriously sexist, but Uber has attracted really negative headlines, and its brand has been hurt because of this
3: why business confidence among European companies is sky high. If you've got Germany and France working well, then the rest of Europe can be pulled along as well. So the confidence in Europe, I think, is to a large extent a political story. And aluminium and the tension in global trade, as President Trump launches an investigation
1: into cheap imports.
0: Chinese overcapacity is a genuine problem. The Trump investigation as to whether it's a threat to national security is a bit more complicated.
1: But to start, General Electric says Jeff Immelt is to end his 16 year tenure in charge and be replaced on August 1st by John Flannery, a three decade veteran at the conglomerate. With more on this, I'm joined by the Economist New York Bureau Chief, Patrick Fowles. Patrick, why is Jeff Immelt going?
4: Hi, Phil. Well, Mr. Immelt's had a very long innings running a very big, complicated business. And in one sense, he's succeeded. He's restructured the company a lot and directed it back towards its core businesses. So making things like jet engines and power stations. But from a financial point of view, GE hasn't really been performing particularly well. And Mr. Immelt's done a lot of churning of its portfolio, buying and selling businesses which has increased the amount of money that's invested in the company. But at the same time, its cash flows, its sort of underlying profits have not really picked up. So after 16 years, I think it's the board and perhaps some of the investors have, have decided it's, it's time for a change of leadership.
1: The age of the conglomerate was the 60s and the 1970s. We've got Berkshire Hathaway under Warren Buffett and GE. Is there really a justification for a broadly based business like this anymore?
4: You're absolutely right, and and it'll be interesting to see whether Mr Flannery, the new boss, comes under pressure immediately to break the company up. I think they would use two justifications. One is that the business has become much more global and that if you're running... A company with products in lots and lots of different countries, there is a synergy from being able to to have a suite of products and share the cost of that global overhead. And the second thing I think they would argue is simply that what Mr Immelt has done is try to direct the portfolio businesses they have back towards a set of businesses that have a bit more in common. So GE, for example, used to own a media business. It used to own NBC, which clearly has nothing to do with jet engines. He's got rid of that. So it is largely focused now on a sort of core set of big, expensive, capital-intensive and sophisticated projects. That's the logic GE would present, but I think it's likely, quite quickly, that logic may be tested again. And how's Wall Street reacted to the news of the change? Well, I think there's been a a modest uptick in the share price and that there'd been some rumours about Mr Immelt choosing to stand down at this time. The fact that there's not a a more euphoric reaction just shows you that there's not really a quick fix. And, and, um, you know, the company has tried the approach of reshuffling its assets and buying and selling stuff. And it hasn't really yielded the kind of financial results you might hope. So there isn't really a quick fix. And the task for the, for the new man will be to A, resist calls for yet another massive reshuffling of its portfolios, and B, to try and crank out more profits from, from what the company already owns. So a lot more on this story to come. Thanks very much to The Economist
1: New York bureau chief, Patrick Fowles. Next, Uber, the ride-hailing giant, has achieved great things in only eight years. It's disrupted the taxi business and become the most valuable private tech startup in America, with a valuation of nearly $70 billion. But recently, it seems to be on a collision course, bending off a major lawsuit concerning intellectual property theft, allegations of sexual harassment, and an inquiry into its workplace culture. What's going to happen? I'm joined by The Economist's US technology editor, Alexandra Suic. Tell us about this inquiry.
2: This all started in February when a former employee, Susan Fowler, published a blog post alleging that Uber has a culture that's where sexual harassment and sexism are pervasive. Travis Kalanick, Uber's boss, agreed to hire Eric Holder, America's former attorney general, to lead an investigation into whether her claims and others were true. There have reportedly been over 200 claims that have been investigated. The results were shared Tuesday with staff. Uh, The larger question is what new changes are going to be implemented to help ensure that none of these issues are repeated again. Of course, this isn't a problem just with Uber. The tech industry is notoriously sexist, but Uber has attracted really negative headlines and its brand has been hurt because of this.
1: Besides the sexual harassment allegations, what's the most serious crisis that Uber's facing?
2: I would point to two. One is a lawsuit by Waymo, Google's sister company, um, which is working on self-driving technology. And it claims that Uber knowingly stole some of its important technology that's used in self-driving cars. That's working its way through the court. It'll be resolved in a few months. Um, it, It comes to trial in the fall unless Uber settles. It recently dismissed the entrepreneur who they had hired, who's the one who had brought the technology from Google, they claim. The other is a potential federal probe into what's called greyballing software and Uber designed software to track regulators um, so they would know when to offer cars or not. If charges are brought by America's government, that will be a real setback for Uber.
1: And has this all hurt Uber's business?
2: It's very difficult to tell because Uber is a private company, so it doesn't have a share price that's adjusted. But according to some analytics, it it has. So their share of the ride-hailing business has fallen by 7%. Over the last five months, Lyft, the number two player in America, has gained a lot of customers. This is particularly true in Western cities, uh, which are more progressive and don't like what they've heard about the sexual harassment allegations. Whether it will hurt Uber's ability to raise new money, it has yet to be seen. I think the lawsuit and the probe are potentially bigger issues than the sexual harassment issues.
1: And what's happening to the management?
2: There have been a lot of executive departures. Some related to the the sexism investigation. Um, others not. But at, as of right now, the executive ranks have really thinned out. There's no chief financial officer. There is no chief operating officer. Recently lost its head of business this week. Um, so things are looking tough. The real question to ask is whether Travis Kalanick will stick around. He is considering taking a temporary leave of absence to deal with the death of his mother, which happened recently. Whether or not that will happen is unclear, but some think that he should permanently step down. And what Uber needs is to really do a U-turn and come up with a different strategy um, and leadership team.
1: My thanks to The Economist's U.S. technology editor, Alexandra Suic. Many companies across Europe are feeling extraordinarily optimistic right now. Business confidence in Germany, by some measures, is higher than it's been since 1991. And in Spain, manufacturers are at their most optimistic in the past dozen years. In France, too, business sentiment is at its cheeriest in six years. So what's going on? I'm joined by the Economist's European business and finance correspondent, Adam Roberts. Adam, what do you think is behind this sudden burst of confidence across European companies?
3: Well, I guess it's a couple of things. We've got a a macroeconomic picture in Europe that is really quite rosy. Interest rates are low. Oil prices are low. There's various reasons why a low and cheap euro might encourage businesses to be happy in this part of the world. But actually, the, the new thing, the, the detail that has really got business leaders very excited in continental Europe is about the political story. It's the election of Emmanuel Macron as president in France, his parliamentary a majority that looks to be assured – uh, suggests that there's going to be big reforms in France of the labour law and other other details in France. And so there's great optimism among businesses on the continent that France finally will get its act going. And so if you've got Germany and France working well, then the rest of Europe can be pulled along as well. So the confidence in Europe, I think, is to a large extent a political story, as well as that background of a of a happier macroeconomic picture.
1: And it's quite amusing, really, isn't it? Because a year ago, and when Britain voted to leave the EU, they were all saying that Europe was about to collapse and said Britain is in political turmoil. The U.S. has uh, got a political scandal running along. Have the European countries really sort of looked at what happened in Britain and I suppose partly the U.S. with the, the success of Donald Trump in the elections and sort of turned away from populism? Do you think that's a, a reasonable explanation?
3: I think that is a big part of it. What happens in Europe is of course affected by what happens across the Atlantic and across the, the English Channel as well. So we've seen, for example, a great rush of American companies coming into Europe and trying to buy up European companies. There's huge activity, mergers and acquisitions. In many cases, Americans trying to buy up European companies with good growth prospects, partly because of that cheap euro, but partly because there's very little activity, I think right now in the United States, because nobody wants to be doing deals given the political uncertainty in America. So as you say, it's a great irony that Europe, which seemed so vulnerable to political crisis and to perhaps the populism of Marine Le Pen just a few months ago, is now seen as something of, a, of an oasis of stability. And in contrast to the sorry state of Britain, given its uh, politics and its Brexit troubles, uh, the situation in France and Germany looks just much, much rosier.
1: But is there a danger it doesn't last? You obviously have to get economic growth up in Europe. You still have problems in Greece. Mr Macron has to push through his reforms, which is uh, previous French governments have discovered is not that easy in the face of trouble in the streets. How long has Europe got before this bloom comes off the rose in terms of this burst of optimism?
3: Yes, of course, there there is a risk and, and we can't be 100% sure that Mr Macron will deliver on what he's promised despite his extraordinarily good situation right now. Despite that very high optimism, the business confidence you mentioned, Europe isn't yet investing, European companies are not yet investing at the high levels that you would expect. Many companies are still hoarding cash and failing to spend on the sort of things that they really need to spend on. European companies are very slow at digitalisation, much f- further behind American or British companies. And so they need to get spending on those sorts of things to get sustained growth and sustained expansion. So there are, of course, reasons why this very optimistic story could fade by the end of the year. And yet if you talk to those business leaders, you talk to the heads of very big companies or indeed the tech entrepreneurs in Paris who are very gung-ho, they do feel that this is the best opportunity, at least in France, that anyone has seen for 15 or 20 years. So there's reasons to still have some scepticism, but actually the optimism is, is much higher than it's been for a long time.
1: Good news then, thanks to The Economist's European business and finance correspondent, Adam Roberts. If you have any thoughts or opinions on what you hear on Money Talks such as the changes at the top of General Electric, the future of Uber, or are European companies right to be so optimistic, then do get in touch. You can contact us on Twitter, at Economist Radio, or you can always send an email to radio at economist.com. Finally, aluminium and the tension in global trade. Donald Trump has launched an investigation into whether cheap imports of aluminium are a threat to national security. I'm joined by Samaya Keynes, our economics correspondent. Samaya, what's going on?
0: Donald Trump has identified a real problem in international trade. This is a problem that the Obama administration had identified as well. And the issue is that essentially the Chinese government has been subsidising its industry. And the big worry is that it's been subsidising them and now... They have huge overcapacity and they can't rein back production. And this huge overcapacity and this oversupply of metals, aluminium, steel, the worry is that those are going to spill onto global markets um, and depress prices. And in some areas, they already have depressed prices. So aluminium is an example, Uh, the American aluminium industry claims that the Chinese have been subsidising its aluminium, giving them cheap loans and cheap electricity, and this has been hurting uh, American production. And if you look at the numbers, there's been a a downward trend of the number of smelters over the last 60 years or so, but um, over the last 10 years, as Chinese production has ramped up hugely, um, the number of aluminium smelters has been closing down. And is
1: this a genuine threat to the US industry?
0: Chinese overcapacity is a genuine problem for American industry. The Trump investigation as to whether it's a threat to national security is a bit more complicated. So part of the issue is that um, America imports a lot of the raw materials to make its aluminium. It can't produce as much as it needs to satisfy demand, which is mostly in car production. Um, so inevitably, really, Americans will import aluminium. There are other problems with this, though. So. Aluminium is a globally traded market, so there's an international price set, and when thinking about this investigation, you really have to think, OK, well, what's Donald Trump going to do about it? What's he going to do about this overcapacity? And, and the issue is that America doesn't actually really import that much aluminium directly from China. A huge fraction of its imports come from Canada, which presumably America isn't worried about going to war with anytime soon. You know, suppose as a result of this investigation, the Trump administration said, OK, great, we're going to put on some tariffs to protect our aluminium industry. So, number one, you'd end up annoying all the Canadian producers and the other kind of allies that America imports from. Two, you'd annoy all the people who are consuming aluminium. And that includes people within the aluminium industry itself because... You know, you have people who are producing the aluminium, people who are rolling them, the aluminium into sheets that they use for other things. And actually, that part of the industry has been doing really well over the last two years. They've created you know, thousands and thousands of jobs. So there's, there's a bit of a disconnect between the problems here and the tools that the Trump administration seems to be reaching for to solve this. Um, although, of course, we don't know exactly yet what the Trump administration is going to do.
1: So if he's about to do the wrong thing, what would be the right thing for him to do?
0: So this is a problem that had been identified before, and the Obama administration had tried to solve the root cause of the problem, which is the Chinese subsidies. And And so in the dying weeks of the Obama administration, the aluminium industry ha- had helped the Obama administration take out the case at the World Trade Organization. So the Obama administration essentially sued the Chinese government for subsidizing its aluminium industry. And if it had won, or, you know, the, the case is still ongoing, it hasn't been withdrawn. But if it wins, that could essentially allow the Americans to, you know, retaliate in some way if the Chinese refuse to withdraw their subsidies. So that's a very, you know, direct solution looking at the direct problem. Um, the, I guess the problem there, obviously, is that um, cases at the World Trade Organization tend to take a very, very long time. Um, and so, you know... There's no perfect solution. This kind of trade issue is hugely, hugely difficult to solve. It's behind the border. You don't have all the tools that you need. You know, you probably need a lot of diplomacy. And, you know, it's very, very tricky.
1: My thanks to The Economist's economics correspondent, Samea Keynes. And that's all for Money Talks this week. To read more about the topics discussed in the show, pick up the latest issue of The Economist or visit economist.com. Do join us again next time in London,